one of the things every human being wants, because it is rooted in our being, is assurance. We want to know, let me see if I can find my clicker. We want to know that we are all on the right track. And the reason for that is, is one of our most primal desires is a sense of security, right? And so we know there's lots of different options, and we want to know that our life is on the right track, that we're on the right path. And you might say, Nick, I don't feel that way because I, I feel like I'm, I want to wander and experience lots of different things. And that's not really true in a way. You just think that the right track is the track of openness and exploration. You think that the path of openness and exploration is the track to be on in order to experience the best life, the place where you want to get to. All of us, in our hearts and in our desires, it is universally human. We are all, many of us are on different tracks, but we all want to be assured that we're on the right one because we want to feel secure. It's one of the reasons why when people tell you you're wrong about some things, you don't get that mad. And when people tell you about other things, you feel really attacked personally, or you get mad. Because that thing that they just attacked, it's not that you're so committed to that truth. That truth is your path. It's the track you're on, and now they've just attacked your sense of assurance because they've attacked the path of your security. And that's true in the good times. You've got to believe you're on the right path in the good times because you want to believe that what you're enjoying in the good times, you're enjoying rightly. That you're not a perpetrator or an oppressor in your enjoyment. You want to believe that even in the good times, you're on the right path. It's true in somewhat troubled times or difficult times because you want something that buoys you, assures you that you're, you can make it through. But when it's the absolute most necessary is in what I'm going to call this morning lamentable suffering. Lamentable suffering is suffering where there is really nothing you can do anymore. You're basically in, in ashes, and all that's left to do is complain. To say, why is this happening? To feel angry or sad about the fact that it's happening. There's nothing really you can do. You're at the very bottom. It's, it's the place of human helplessness. It's the place of having been put to shame, losing whatever conflict that you were in, and recognizing that there's, there's nothing you can do, right? In that place, can the human soul find assurance, clarity in what must be done, courage in what to do, and can, in the place of being put to shame, can someone be vindicated and lifted up and be a conqueror? Right? And that's the focus of this passage. The focus of this passage is— Let's consider the effects of the love of Christ and whether or not we can look at ourselves in the place of lamentable suffering and believe that we can be overcomers rather than destroyed in the ashes of shame. Right? So let's read these verses again. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it's written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I want to go through this kind of in two parts. One is, I want to look at the main points in this text that will follow a sentence I'm going to give you in a second. And then I want to look at um, what that, how, why that matters for us. How it gives us clarity and courage. So here's the sentence I want to give you. 
This summarizes the passage. It's almost a direct quote from one of the verses of the passage. That we conquer, that is we believers in Christ, we Christians, conquer in lamentable suffering through Christ. That's four parts. We conquer in lamentable suffering through Christ. Okay? We're going to go through these four things rather quickly. The first is, we are the ones in question here. The way the Greek is set up, the word we is moved to the beginning of the sentence before the verb, even though we are the predicate, because it gives emphasis to the fact that this focuses on us. Now, why is that important? Well, because the verses right before this have focused on the fact that God's love is not in question. Okay, God's commitment is not in question. God as conqueror in Christ in the curse and in our wretchedness is not in question. God justifies wretched sinners. God is with us in our transformation. He's already given his son. He's not going to stop now giving. He's already given his son. He's in, right? And there's no condemnation for us because the one who died condemned in our place, Jesus Christ, stands at the right hand of God interceding for us, not angry at us, right? And so God's whether God can be separated out by another accusing us, that's settled. That, nothing's going to happen with that. The question is, can we be separated from the love of Christ? Can the relationship between us and Christ, that which causes us to conquer, which redeems us, that thing, can a wedge be driven between us and so to separate us from it so that we would be lost because we are somehow taken away? And the greatest candidate for that is lamentable suffering being put to shame, being wrecked by life, feeling like life is slaughter, right? This, this passage, the question is about us. What's going to happen to us, right? Specifically, in lamentable suffering. In lamentable suffering. What is going to happen to us in lamentable suffering? So, it's important to recognize that what, what these verses are saying are, you are not going to be saved out of lamentable suffering. The purpose of Christ in your life, what's going to happen through the work of Christ in your life, is not that Jesus died for you so that you never have to die or face any suffering. That's not the way it works. If anybody preaches a message of the gospel to you about Jesus, in which that's the answer. You believe in Jesus. He died for you so you can be rich. He died for you so that you won't suffer. He suffered so you won't suffer. He suffered shame, so you'll never be—nobody will attack your good name ever. You'll be blessed and healthy, and you'll die instantly in your sleep and be immediately in glory. That's the inheritance of a Christian. That is not the inheritance of a Christian. The Bible promises that nowhere it is not to be hoped for. Among all the innumerable glories, that cheap glory is not to be hoped for, right? Because— the illustration of our experience that the apostle uses is a passage from Psalm 44 in the Old Testament, which is alone in all of the Psalms or songs of the Old Testament, and that it is a claim of righteous lament. That is, that the, the one singing the song in Psalm 44 is claiming that he is being destroyed in the ashes of suffering. There is almost nothing left of him, and he—it's not because he was unfaithful, right? On, on one level, if God is a moral God, and we reject him entirely, we're not in his covenant, he's not promised his love to us, but we are acting as rebels against him, and something bad happens to us, we might not know it's from God, but we could at least think that perhaps God could be acting judicially or retributively in our lives, right? But this person is saying, that's not true. That's not true. He says— 
in verses 1 through 3, he says, Our ancestors succeeded and drove out the nations. In verse 3, it was not by their sword that they won the land. No, it was by your right hand, your arm, the light of your face, for you loved them. It was through you, verse 5, we pushed back our enemies. Verse 8, in God we make our boast. All day long, we will praise your name forever. So they're 100% committed to God, both their heritage and in the present. And remember, in verse, in chapter 5 in verse Romans, in, in chapter 5 in the book of Romans, the apostle says, it's in Christ we make our boast. And in that boast, we will never be put to shame. So the exact same language is here. And then in verses 9 through 16, he basically says, but we're getting killed. We're totally put to shame. We're destroyed by our enemies. You don't help us. No one helps us. We're being treated like slaves in a byword. We were sent into exile. All kinds of terrible things are happening to us. Verse 17 says this, And all this came upon us, though we had not forgotten you. We'd not been false to your covenant. Our hearts had not turned back, and our feet had not strayed. strayed. But you crushed us and made us a haunt for jackals. Verse 22, Yet for your sake, we face death all day long. Meaning, we have not turned away from your name. We bear your name, and because we bear your name, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 23, Awake, O Lord, rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Verse 26, Rise up and help us. Rescue us because of your unfailing love. You see the point? These people are, are experiencing not just inadvertently because they bear the name of God, but because they bear the name of God, they're being killed all day long and they're considered by their adversaries nothing better than a sheep to be killed for food. Right? And what, what the Apostle Paul is saying is he's saying that godly cry in Psalm 44. There's nothing wrong with it. That godly cry of absolute lament. God, we believe and trust in you and we're getting killed. That is your heritage. You get to receive in Christ that experience. Now, not everybody is going to experience it quite this way. There's a lot of people who live in times of peace and not in evil times. And none of us get to choose the providences of our existence. Many of us sit here and we're really concerned about the COVID crisis. And that's a heck of a lot better than wondering if Boko Haram is going to come into our little Nigerian village and kidnap and rape our women and slaughter us and cut off our heads. There's a relativity to suffering. Make no mistake. And most of us have never experienced this kind of lamentable suffering. But the last question in Romans 8 is, will these things separate us from the love of Christ? And the last one is sword. And sword there means violent death. Or the fact that all of us are going to die, and as Lewis said, most of us very unpleasantly. And so if you are not reduced to the ashes of death before your literal death, virtually all of us will be reduced to the ashes of death at our death and preceding it. And he's saying this is the place that we need to consider as to whether or not we can be separated from the love of Christ. This is the place. Because listen, if in this place nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, then in no place. Right? In the good times, you won't forget him. In the 
difficult times. Like you go to a secular college and people dislike you because you're a believer and they think you're stupid and they, right? You're, you're not dying at the hands of martyrdom, but that's difficult. It's hard to deal with that day after day. Well, if sword can't separate you from the love of Christ, then that can't either. Like if you can be this grounded, grounded in lamentable suffering, you can, you can be ready for everything and nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. But notice one more thing. In the next verse, when he says that we are more than conquerors, it starts with, verse 37 says, rather, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Notice this, that when the conquering happens, it doesn't say over all these things. We are more than conquerors. It says in them. That is, we are made conquerors in Christ through the suffering in the love of Christ, in the character and the faith by which we suffer, and triumph in suffering. So don't believe that God's blessing for you is that through Christ you will, you will conquer over the suffering, and the suffering will be defeated and go away, and you'll be free of it. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes it happens, and sometimes it happens through Christ. But that is not the promise here for all of the lament lamentable suffering of your life. Okay, let's move on to some more good news. How about that? Okay, so th the third thing is that we conquer. Yes, we. Yes, in lamentable suffering, but we conquer. Right? That's the central promise that um, in verse 37 in the NIV, it's, tra it's, it's trans the first word is translated, no. The Greek conjunction there is Allah, which is the but that is very different than the thing that came before it. So it, it, you could it, translate it rather or instead, or completely opposite of that. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. So if the contrast isn't, I was suffering, now I'm not suffering. That's not the contrast, because in this, you're suffering, and then you're still suffering. So what's the contrast? The contrast is, are you only a sheep to be slaughtered? Or are you more than that? Right? Notice, notice the verse from Psalm 44 very carefully. For your sake, that is, we bear your name, we face death all day long. That is, we're facing suffering that is either like or is dying. Okay? That's happening. And then it says, we are considered like sheep to be slaughtered. That is, the people inflicting the suffering upon us see us, God's children, as like a lamb who has only been raised for its meat. Okay? But the word slaughter is actually used in, at least in two different contexts in the Bible. Right? One is slaughtering an animal for food. What's the other? Right? It's the slaughtering of an animal in divine sacrifice for the purpose of redemption and reconciliation. Right? They're both slaughter. Same word is used. It's killed. And yet, in Christ, like Christ, the slaughtering is not just for slaughter's sake. It's not just for meat's sake. We're not just thrown as corpses into the meat grinder of history by whoever chooses to persecute us or hate us or whatever, whatever diseases or pestilences come along or whatever happens in the hardship of our lives. No. No, 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 no. Our death— 
are bleeding is rooted in the fact that we have been made sacrificial lambs. We die with purpose. We we die unto something. We have a character in what we do. We are standing unblemished before God, laying our lives down for another, like the Christ who came before us. And in that character, we conquer. Because we are walking in the way of Christ, like Christ, following Christ, devoted to Christ. And so literally in the dying, we come the closest to Christ we can ever be. And so nothing can separate us from the one we are increasingly closer to in the suffering itself. Even if it is to the very end of lamentable suffering. Because Jesus ended his own life with a lament from the Psalms. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I could say a bunch more on that, but let's move on. The the last is, it's through Christ. So we, in lamentable suffering, conquer through Christ. Now, the word through is doing a lot of work. That's why there's a bulldozer on the slide, right? That, That preposition, through Christ, doesn't just mean our sentimental attachment to Jesus. That if you are sentimentally attached to Jesus— You call yourself a Christian, but you're really a Christian in name only. That that sentimental attachment to Jesus means that God will irrevocably save you from the divine perspective, and nothing can touch you or draw you away from your faith. You could never lose your faith. That is not what is being said. Romans 8, 31 through 39 comes at the end of Romans 1, 1 through 8, 29, in which the Apostle Paul has explained an incredible list and outworkings of all that Christ has done. Where we were, and what position we were in, and how he died to justify us, and how that, how faith appropriates it, and how that gives us hope in the glory of God, and gives us grace in which we now stand, through which we understand the demonstration of the love of God in the death of Christ for us while we were sinners and ungodly and far from him, so that we can die the death of Christ in baptism, be raised in premature resurrection in the fullness of the Spirit, so that sin can be put to death, and we can walk with the mind of the Spirit, so that we can groan inwardly with the Spirit's power in all the effects of the curse, so that we can know that we are more than conquered and that God works everything for the good of those who he has called, who love him, so that he conforms them into the beauty of the image of his beautiful son, so that we are the—he is the firstborn among many of us, his brothers and sisters, that look like Christ in perfect humanity, bearing the image of God, so that he will ultimately glorify us. That word through is doing all that work— So don't think that Romans 8's point is so that if you sentimentally say you like Jesus, that you are inescapably redeemed forever and nothing could ever happen to you, when a trifling and pathetically false and dishonest faith should turn the truthful and honest God in some way to treat the death of his son as an ugly and worthless thing in our presumption that we should defy him the rest of our lives and him being nothing to us, and yet we would receive all the beauty of dying in his death so that we could rise in his resurrection. The word through does all the work, and Christ did all the work. And we are conquerors in Christ— by means of the work 
of Jesus. All of it appropriated through faith. You must take in and believe and apply and experience the gospel's gifts. And when you do so, the strength that rises in you is capable of making you the sort of creature that cannot be separated from the love of Christ. Remember, Paul doesn't say, here is a Bible promise. Paul says, I am convinced. Right? The point there is not, this is an analytical truth. The point is, is that if we believe what is said in Romans 1, 1 through 8, 29, and it affects us and changes us, and we take it as Romans 8 says, the mind of the Spirit, the effect of that will produce the result. He believes entirely in his mind that we can't be separated from the love of Christ. It is an operational promise. And too many Christians, or nominal Christians, Christians in name only, I think believe that this passage assures them eternal salvation, whether or not their faith is genuine or real or suffering, or whether they—because remember, just a few verses before this, he says, if you live in the mind of the flesh, you will die, meaning eternal death. He doesn't get rid of that verse when he says these verses. The way to not die that death is to employ these verses through faith in and through Christ. So let's end with just a couple, a couple quick applications. How does this in lamentable suffering, all the difficulties of our life, and even the good times in our life, which are difficulties, there's a kind of difficulty to prosperity because it produces pride, right? So all the times of our life, we need a clarity and a confidence to do what must be done. In terms of a clarity— When we suffer, there's three possible things that we can think are happening. And if we think that there's three possibilities, it's very difficult to know exactly what's true. And in these multiple options, we lose our will because we don't know what to do. We don't know which track to take. One is that we could believe that our wretchedness will divide us from the love of Christ. That Jesus has loved us so far, but ultimately our sin and our wretchedness will overcome his love. Which is normal because that's true about us. There is an extent of wretchedness another person could have who we love that could lead us to stop loving them. And it's very easy to, to anthropomorphize God in a way that we think his love is no better than ours. That's normal, especially when we've experienced people taking their love from us. Right? And so— that's a possibility, right? And then the second possibility is that the curse will overwhelm me. That life will be so difficult, I will suffer so much that I just won't believe in Jesus. Or I'll, I'll believe that it's evidence that he doesn't even exist. So either I will be broken by his sense of absence or his sense of absence will persuade me that he's not even there. But Paul offers a third possibility, which is, no, this actually all comes down to the togetherness between you and Christ. Whether, whether or not you will cross the finish line has nothing to do with the extent of your wretchedness, has nothing to do with the extent of the curse. What it has to do with is with the question of faith. Will you cling to the one who has bought you, who has saved you, who stands advocating for you, who has poured out his life for you, who is making you like himself, who has given you his spirit, who has freed you from the power of indwelling sin, who has justified you from all the guilt of your past, who has reconciled you to God himself, and has put you in an eternal family. Like, in all those things, will you in faith cling to God? 
That's the issue. And the point of that is to give clarity so that these other two possibilities can be put away. And you can know the one thing that you're called to do and be. Because then you can know where to go, what to do, what track to be on, what actually, what decision stands in front of you to make, right? Which leads us to this, which is that we have to do what must be done. I, I would normally say confidence, but I don't, I don't really like the word confidence because confidence is ambiguous because it doesn't say what your confidence is in. I think that I like the word courage more because it means that you choose the good for the right reason no matter what stands in front of you, which is different, right? And, and that is the courage to recognize this. After death is resurrection. After shame is glory. That they go together, right? And therefore we have to recognize that the hope of the resurrection comes through the death that comes by faith. There is no saving Christian faith that doesn't have built into it a death. Now you might say, well, Nick, when I heard about this, I heard about repentance and faith. I did not hear about dying. What do you think repentance is? Repentance is, I was wrong about everything. I burn it all to ashes and leave it all behind me to follow Christ alone. That's, that's a death. Repentance is always a death. It's a death of what we thought and how we lived and what track we were on and how we were going to get things for ourselves and the good life that we were going to try to procure for ourselves and all of the plans that we had that did not involve the beauty of God and the glory of Christ and the direction that he was leading us on. And all that has to be burned ashes for there to be repentance and therefore faith. Repentance and faith always produces death and resurrection. In fact, you could say repentance is a death and faith always includes a resurrection. The two are simultaneous and joined like a marriage. So therefore, we have to recognize that if we know nothing can separate us from the resurrecting, conquering love of Christ, then What's that giving us the courage to do? Well, the, the answer is the courage to die. To really die. Right? It says earlier here in chapter 8, he's, it says, here's the mark of your true sonship. If we share in Christ's sufferings so that we can share in his glory. That message of facing the slaughter of the curse with the hope and the joy of the resurrection is a message with this passage. Now think about this. In the word conquer, right? It says in your Bible, probably your English Bible, it says more than, we are more than conquerors. Um, that word that's translated more than conquerors, it only appears once in the New Testament. It's, it's hupernikao. It's, um, it's to overconquer or to supremely conquer. It's, it's a very uncommon word. I'm not sure Paul made it up. It's hard to tell. Um, but it's, 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 he's trying to say more than win, because here's the thing. If we just conquered in lamentable suffering, we would think we would conquer our way out of it. Right? But he says, no, it's more than that. You don't just defeat your enemy. Your enemy serves you. You, you do you're, you're more than conquering. Now, how does our enemy serve us when they consider us sheep to be slaughtered? Whether the curse is the he that's slaughtering us, or whether it's people in persecution who do so. And the answer is, because God utilizes the suffering itself to transform us, to glorify himself, to demonstrate his worth to the watching world, 
and to redeem those he chooses among them. He displays himself, he transforms us, and he wins his own victory in our death and resurrection in a similar way to the atonement victory of Christ's death and resurrection. Jesus caused the people who murdered him to serve him in his victory by killing him. Similarly, as we follow in the suffering of Christ, we don't atone for anyone, but in the purposes and plan of God, our death, what kills us, serves God and serves us in our triumph over it and in what is accomplished in future glory, in reward, in the valuing of God, in the transformation of our hearts for eternity, in producing real love in us and courage and life. We don't just conquer. It's not so cheap a thing as that. We demolish we overcome, we make the very thing that kills us our servant, and in some cases, our brother. <clears throat> if you look online at the, at the Cage Equip blog, under this point, I have a number of passages from the Bible that lay this out. But um, let me just end real quickly with um, a story that sort of trivializes this. But I want to make it really concrete for people for whom they're like, this is all really theological. I don't know if I can— so, okay, imagine for a minute, you have a couple, a man and a woman who start a business. And it's been going for a few years. It's been their dream to start this business. And it's not really going very well, right? And it's because the guy has another full-time job that he hates, right? His, his boss doesn't really pay him very well, but he's—he threatens to fire him. But he's been working there for like 20 years, and the, the business is right on the lake, and the guy loves to fish, and there's like a boat right there. So like after work, you go out and fish for a couple hours. It has these like little perks that he kind of likes, right? And so he, he wishes he could, you know, do both, and he, and, and he doesn't really want to quit the, the job that has some perks and pays some bills, even though it's got problems, right? And his wife finally comes to him one night. He says, listen, she says, listen, if you, if you would quit your job, and come to work for our business. I know it would flourish. I know it. I know that if it had, it had all your heart and all my heart, and I know that there's need, I know that this would flourish. But it, will, it, it is going to die if you don't quit your job. Okay, you have to burn all that to ashes. I know you love to fish after work. I know you like to sit out on the dock and just be at peace. I know you like to have a steady job. And I know that you hate your boss and he's mean, but you, it's, it's, it's a thing that you have. And I know you're comfortable and this has been your life. And we've, we've had a good life so far. I get all that. But it, listen, husband, if you don't burn all that to ashes, if you don't quit, if you don't throw it off for the risk of what we're trying to build together, we're going to lose our dream. And ultimately, he's going to fire you in the prime of your life and you're going to have nothing. Because that guy's a monster. And he's holding on to you with these little pittances of sugar and stuff. And you've got to let it go. You've got to die to that thing. Or we can't have our dream. And our dream's not going to be easy. It's going to be super hard work. But this is our dream. And you'll have me. We'll be together. Right? Like, in a way, that's what this decision is like. Without the death, there is no resurrection. And with it, if we, you die in the Spirit by faith— I no longer live, it says in Galatians, but Christ lives in me. I was baptized into his death in faith so that I live now by his resurrection life. If you believe that way, you will be redeemed. 
and you will display that you have been called and you will experience justification and God will conform you into the image of his son and Jesus will eternally advocate at his father's side for you and the spirit will help you groan your way through the curse and you will, the one who he has justified, he will ultimately glorify and even your lamentable sufferings, even the ashes of death, you will not just conquer, you will overconquer. It will ultimately serve you as you serve God. Like the murderers of Jesus served God and his purposes when they killed Jesus the Christ because God would raise him from the dead and use their injustices to glorify himself and save many. So whether you have gone to church for 20 years or whether you're watching your first Christian video online right now, this is the repentance and faith Jesus speaks of. It is the only good death. And it is not cheap. And you may have disliked Christianity before because you thought it was too cheap. Oh, you just say you're wrong and you believe in Jesus, you're going to heaven. I hope you have experienced it's, that's, not the, that's not the message. It is, but it's not. If you are able to believe this right now. It is because the spirit that you cannot per entirely perceive is working in you. Scripture says over and over, that Jesus says that only the spirit can make us able as sinners to open ourselves to the truth and receive the truth and believe it. And that's why it says in 2 Corinthians, today is the day of salvation. Because if you are able at this moment to believe, you have to seize that moment. God does not promise an equal ability to believe by his Spirit throughout all of your life. He will give you moments where he will make something clear and you are called to seize that moment, to be honest before him and to repent and believe and to experience the regeneration that he will create if you do so. So do it now. Admit what you've done. Admit your rebellion. Admit the fact that you didn't want anything to do with him. Admit that you have been wrong. And that there is a death to all those things that he offers you that's the only good death. And that he, and that wedded to that death is resurrection life forever. And that you receive them both in Christ. And if you do, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. I am convinced with the apostle and the word of the scriptures that Neither height, nor depth, future or present, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We're going to take a little bit of time to sing right now. I hope that you'll respond to this. There's probably going to be a moment on the, on the chat tab if you have made a commitment to Jesus. I want to encourage you to click on that and go through to prayer. Talk to somebody and pray with somebody. I also want to encourage you that if you have a question, like you're maybe not be ready to receive Jesus, but you, you've got a question, to click on that anyway and say, I didn't accept Jesus right now, but I have questions. I want to talk to somebody. Click that and talk to somebody. And I pray that as we sing right now, you'll give your hearts to Jesus. If you have questions, type them into the chat, and then we'll sit down for a few minutes at the end. God, I pray that you'd work by your Spirit right now among all people, that you would draw our hearts to you and adoring you, to cling to you entirely in the whole of the gospel. And I pray that people who haven't would turn to you right now for the first time, and that you'd free them from the slavery of sin, and that you'd open them up to the glorious freedom of the children of God, and that you would give them this inheritance. In Jesus' name.